on today's Compassion Radio. It's a hard time to find housing for anyone in the United States. And then if you add to that, people who have no credit history, which is any refugee or immigrant, we have a limited number of landlords who will rent an apartment. Hello and welcome to Compassion Radio. Today is part two of an important conversation with Matt Sorens of World Relief on the situation for Afghan refugees arriving in the United States and what they face right now. We'll pick it up with a quick recap of the particular challenges of finding housing in a really tight market. Why should we care? Well, listen on to find out. Thanks for joining us today. We would really like for them to have the confidence that they belong here because unfortunately they're not going back to Afghanistan. The Taliban is not going away in the short term. We want them to know that they belong in the United States. This is now their home. And the way to convey that at a legislative level is some sort of a process by which people could apply for permanent legal status, which is usually the case for refugees. And we've been advocating for that. And usually they do end up in that process, whether it's a green card, as we would think about it for people south of our border or other kinds of visas that have certain kinds of numbers and letter designations that we don't memorize here, but they have significance. It's like the people going into the Schengen zone in in Europe versus having refugee status offshore. There's a big difference in what you can or cannot do with that. Now, when parole is offered, there's also a legal expectation that they will present themselves on demand, correct? Yeah. I mean, they're lawfully present, but they still need to to renew that status on a regular interval. Right. So different than just saying you have a permit to go wherever you want. You actually do, if they call you, say, I am here and make an account for yourself. So there is an added layer of accountability, it seems to me, in a parole situation than just releasing people without any controls at all. So for those who are more concerned about the safety issues, it does seem like the parole system is one that we at least understand what it does. It makes sure we keep track of people as best we can and don't just let them go without any oversight at all. Yeah. And again, they are being sent through resettlement agencies like World Relief. So they're getting some support. You know, someone's there at the airport to meet them, at least our staff person usually, but often a team of volunteers as well. And it's a way to make sure that people have a smooth integration process where they have help learning the language. Some of these Afghans were translators for the U.S. Mm-hmm. military. They speak English very well. But others don't. I mean, that's not the story for everyone. So there's a language barrier that needs, you know, people need help learning language, connecting to employers, finding housing even before they've arrived. And that's frankly one of the biggest challenges right now. It's a hard time to find housing for anyone in the United States. And then if you add to that, people who have no credit history, which is any refugee or immigrant, we have a limited number of landlords who will rent an apartment in advance of someone even arriving. We can tell them we will get them a job. And that is almost always true but they don't have a job before they've landed. So those are challenges as well. So you speak for those who can't speak for themselves, and that's the the strong role you play in the society, and also helping to deal more with the fears of those receiving them than just the fears of those coming. So let's talk about the Afghan refugees you're working with and focus on right now, because that's the big wave that's coming for you. Now, 10,000 people across the entire United States is not that big a deal. You're talking maybe 1,000 or 1,500 people per state, even if you distribute them completely evenly. So it's not a massive logistics issue for the actual physical resettlement, but there is a big logistical issue about how to integrate them quickly and to make the most of the money you have available to you through your donations and through your contracts in order to make sure you serve these people well. What is unique about the Afghan refugees that you're welcoming in, besides just the fact they're closer tied to the military and U.S. service than others might be? What is unique about this bunch of people for you? 
You know, I think one thing that is unusual compared to the other groups that we have resettled historically is the timeline of their mm-hmm. arrival in the United States. I mean, often the average refugee that we resettle has been in a refugee camp setting for literally a decade yeah. or more. I mean, sometimes we're resettling children who were born in that camp or adults who were born in a camp. I mean, we've resettled people who've been in camps for 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, I was devastated myself just traveling in some of the camps in like Uganda and Bidibidi camp at the south of Sudan meeting grandparents as being the only people in the camp that actually remembers coming to it. But they've got two or three generations of people who, this is the only community that they've ever known. It devastates me because I know what's out there and what other possibilities are. And when your entire universe is just nothing but this realm, often with concertina wire around there, you're growing up in a prison, or like Soweto would have been 30 years ago in South Africa. It is the same kind of barrio and separation issues that become really, really dangerous over generations. Yeah, it, I mean, and it's also just such a waste of the potential that God has placed in those individuals. Yeah. I mean, I had a colleague who was resettled by World Relief. Uh, he's originally from Burundi. He told me some years ago, you know, the refugee camp is a, it's a rich place, but you have all this human potential that's just locked away. Yeah. And the solution to some of our world's problems is this warehouse in a refugee camp right now. It is really tragic in many ways, but then with the Afghans, it's a very different circumstance because, mm-hmm. I mean, literally they got on an airplane in Kabul before the end of August. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, just in the last couple months, which also means that it's a very fresh trauma. Yeah. Pretty much every refugee has been traumatized. I mean, it's sort of the definition of having to have fled persecution, but it's been very recent for a lot of the folks who fled Afghanistan. Okay. Let me camp on that thought for a second. We all agree that there's trauma going on, but giving definition to it or being able to give a word picture is that someone who has not seen it, has not experienced it, could comprehend it. When you say these people are going through a fresh trauma, how does it manifest itself that you would be able to recognize when they arrive? Good friend, former colleague, Isam Smear, who's a psychologist, and he's helped me sort of understand what's actually happening in the human brain. He said to me that, you know, trauma is basically a wound of the soul. And it is often it manifests itself in in post-traumatic stress disorder, which is basically where people will actually relive some of the experiences that they've had. Um, He shared with me the example of an Iraqi gentleman whom we served who, you know, even though on a rational basis knew this didn't make sense, he couldn't drive by the police station because of what the police Mm. in his country had done to him and torturing him. And he knows that the police in Illinois are not the same as the police in Iraq. He gets that on a rational level, but his physical reaction, just driving by a police station, or if he would be pulled over by the police, his heartbeat would race and he would sometimes have flashbacks. And that's not every refugee, but, you know, people have gone through some very severe, horrifying experiences. And the good news is people do experience healing from that, but it sometimes takes some time. And that's one of the things we try to do at World Relief wherever we can is get this this sort of counseling and support for people understanding that a great many of them have gone through really significant trauma, really significant hardship that isn't resolved the moment they land in the United States. Sometimes they've been able to sort of suppress that for a while. And once they are safe, it's almost like they can exhale. And some of those memories come flooding back as they are in the midst of the resettlement process. You know, the example you just gave about the police just as an object in this man's mind as being a trigger, their existence for him is a danger and a threat because it's not resolved and there's no healing with that very one particular experience. What do you all do about bringing those who are in the place of being triggers into contact with those who are triggered by those memories and build a relationship that transforms that cycle? 
Do you have situations where you bring people from different governmental authorities in to actually meet and know these refugees so they can understand the threat is not real? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's part of the cultural adjustment process that we try to help people understand. You know, this is how things work in the United States. This is law enforcement and their function. You know, there's a whole range of issues that can come up. And again, we don't have this everywhere. I wish we did. But in some of our programs, we have counseling support. Isam, who I mentioned, is a psychologist. So he, you know, he's working him through a therapy process that really helps people mm-hmm. address the trauma that they've experienced in kind of clinically proven ways. And he experienced a lot of healing. Like that was a good example of someone who, with some time, was able to function very normally and very successful in the United States. So that does happen, but it does take some time and it takes some support. And with the Afghans in particular, you know, we've not had a ton of experience with those who've just arrived yet, but I think it's reasonable that some of them will have really gone through some really terrible trauma, even in the evacuation process. I think if we just started with the presumption, which would be, I think, a valid one, that the people we're meeting, if we do run across an immigrant, whether it's somebody that's been here for years or a fresh one off the airplane, and just remind ourselves that the person I'm looking at probably went through something horrible. Yeah. And just admit that this possibility, not to proclaim it over them, but just to allow for it, that it reminds us of our better angels, that these people have experienced possibly things I will never experience, and therefore I ought to cut them a little slack if they can't speak English quite the same way I do, and begin that process of softening our hearts, because it's not about making them conform to us. It is, as you say, hospitality. The real godly hospitality is one that seeks out those who need it, not just waiting for those to come pound your door down. And you train people how to act in a way that is hospitable in the biblical sense. But (laughs) this might be helpful for us, whether we like it or not. But I want to ask you, what are the things that you see or encounter, especially within evangelicals, within people of faith, that really can mess it up. What are the things you look at and say, don't do this in the presence of somebody who's a refugee or whatever? What are the kind of things you coach people in to be not just culturally sensitive, but genuinely interested in and caring for the person that's right in front of your nose? Yeah. You know, I don't know that it's unique to evangelicals, but certainly I think we do want to make sure that anyone, you know, any volunteer is coming in in a culturally informed way. So you know, that might be something as simple as most Afghans are going to be Muslim. So don't offer them a hot dog that is against their religion to eat. Do the mm-hmm. basic cultural awareness to know, oh, we should buy this product that will not be offensive to them. Or my Burmese friends, you take your shoes off before you go in the house. And that's mm-hmm. just a way to not unnecessarily offend people. A lot of refugees, generally, they're from much more communal societies than the United States. Mm-hmm. So they tend to have a bigger idea of what your family is, not just your spouse and children, but your extended family is your family as well. And a lot of probably closer to the biblical idea of family in the context that scriptures were written. And we've got some things to learn there also. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like you need a master's degree in cross-cultural communication to be able to (laughs) volunteer. But there are some basic training that's really helpful. And that's part of what World Release Role is. It's our strong desire to be going deeper, to go farther, to be braver than we've ever been, and to bring you the stories that you just won't hear anywhere else. I simply ask that you would keep giving so that we can give back to the world through our strategic ministry partners and to you with inspiring programming on this radio station and over the internet. Here's how. The best way to reach us is through our website. It's available 24-7. You can also support us with a call during Pacific Time Business Hours at 1-800-868-2478. You can also text COMPASSION to 53445 to give right through your phone no matter where you are. 
You can also put a stamp on an envelope and mail your gift to our Compassion Radio office, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. A couple of years ago, sitting down with refugees that had been resettled in St. Louis from the Karen in Southeast Asia. And when you start trying to figure out who is who in the group, you know, sons, daughters, that kind of stuff, you start asking questions about who are you to them was a more appropriate question than who are you. You had to think in terms of when they're looking at that person with you, they have a specific relationship with them, which may not be the same as the person over here. The word uncle or even father or mother was fungible. It could be <laughs> applied to many people in the group. And so trying to figure out who really truly was related to each other was not nearly as important to them as it was to me yeah. to figure those relationships out. Because the relationships that they wanted to talk about were not the ones that I was all that familiar mm -hmm. with. But it was interesting hearing their stories. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's also a lot of, you know, a cultural difference that is probably something we should learn something from. A lot of respect for the elderly and for those who are yeah. older in a way that isn't disrespectful necessarily in the United States, but it's not as a notable distinction that people, and again, not every culture, but the Burmese, the various groups from Burma in particular, a lot of particular honor for those who are older. Being aware of that dynamic and being able to respect that as well as is something that's really important as we engage in this. I made a mistake in that conversations with some of these refugees that I didn't realize I was making. And it turned out to be charming in that I learned a word. I thought it was the name of the person, but it actually was their title. Mm -hmm. So it was mother or mama, that, that kind of idea. And so when I started doing an interview with them and talking about relationship between these people and naming them as I went around, I kept referring to her as mama mm -hmm. and going into this conversation and pursuing it. And she was getting tickled by the whole thing. Later in our discussion, one of the guys leaned in and said, she's really our mama, but she loves you too. <laughs> and... And, and she looked at me and said, you're my son now. Yeah. For me, it was like embarrassing that I had somehow crossed a line where I was being too familiar with her. And I wasn't intending to at all. I was trying to be respectful. But she was also discovering that they had power there to actually bless me. And they respected the fact that I really did want to know their life, their story, and spend a little time with them and celebrate them. That meant the world to them. So their stories just started flowing. Yeah. I think the idea of breaking bread over the table and actually saying, I would love to know you and your family or eat with you. Is there a way we could do that? You train your people how to be that kind of hospitable and find appropriate ways to get into cultural contexts. Well, that kind of friendship could evolve. But is there any risk that you see in us being brave in our hospitality and our friendship? Um, I mean, I think we want to pair bravery with humility. So just being mm. brave in the sense of, you know, the opposite of brave is to hide in your house and not... <laughs> you know, stay away from these relationships altogether. You know, that's a mistake for the church. It's missing out on an opportunity to be a blessing and to bless others, but also to be humble, not to come into this relationship with the presumption that you have everything to offer and they have nothing but need, um, because yeah. that's not the case. That's, they are someone whom God has made and blessed with unique skills and some, a lot to offer us. Even this idea of hospitality, we use that to talk about welcoming immigrants, but my mentors in terms of hospitality have been immigrants. I mean, yeah. I lived in an apartment complex for many years where most of my neighbors have been resettled as refugees or were immigrants from other contexts. And the amount of food that I would be offered like on a daily basis, <laughs> yeah. I mean, often it's exactly. like, this is my third dinner. I already had Mexican food yeah. and now I'm eating Sudanese food and then uh, Iranian food, you know, as a neighbor who they may or may not have known well, but they want to invite me into their lives. And I think that's common in, you know, it's, I live in the suburbs of a city. It's people tend to be kind of focused on themselves and their immediate family and we often don't know mm -hmm. the people who live two doors down from us. We have a lot to learn from cultures that do have a stronger focus on hospitality and closer to the biblical sense. 
So let's say we're living in some of a mixed neighborhood where there are people that are near us that we've never really met. And we never really thought about bridging that gap before. If we're in a situation, even if something as simple as someone who may speak with a Spanish accent or something that feels odd or foreign to us, but there are neighbors, literally our neighbors in the traditional sense of the word in English, what's something that you and your experience and your people would lean in and say, you know, you could do this right now to make that bridge happen? What would that kind of thing be? I mean, it probably sounds a little bit basic, but the first thing I would say is just be friendly. Like when you see people on the street, smile at them, say hello. People usually know hello, whatever their language capacity is. They very well make mm-hmm. speak English as well as you do. But, you know, look for opportunities to ask people, not like intrusive questions where they feel like you're, they're being interrogated, but, you know, where are you from originally? How long have you lived here? Oh, you're from a different country. What do you miss about your country of origin? Look for those opportunities to let people share a little bit of themselves when they're comfortable and, you know, be willing to share about yourself as well, but don't do all the talking. I mean, it's, uh, scripture is right to tell us to be slow to speak and quick to listen and not listening with an agenda in mind. Like we're looking to respond mm-hmm. to someone, but yeah. listen to understand better, to understand where people are coming from, what we might be able to learn from them. And I find that that goes a long way, especially this is not true for every immigrant, but a lot of immigrants are fairly isolated. Um, Often they are, they work, they tend to be working very hard, lots of hours. They may or may not have a strong community around them that's supporting them. Again, some do. Many are part of very vibrant churches. And that's another, I think, dynamic that, you know, is important to be aware of. A lot of immigrants are brothers and sisters in Christ. Even among refugees, we mentioned the Karen Burmese. Most Karen are Christians, but 70% of Burmese refugees overall are Christians. A lot of them are Baptists who trace their spiritual lineage back to Adoniram Judson, bringing the gospel yeah. to Burma. My Burmese friends are the only people I know who celebrate Adoniram Judson Day every year. I don't know a lot of Americans who do that, but um, <laughs> yeah. part of the reason they're refugees is because they were first Christians and they were persecuted for their faith in Jesus forced out of the country many times living in camps in Thailand or elsewhere for a decade or more. And just to think about the many things that we have to learn from them, the strength and resilience and grit that they bring with them. You know, I think it's a mistake if we think of refugees just as people in need who need help, though sometimes that's true, Uh, but also to recognize the resilience that they bring with them and what that can teach for the American church and and Americans in general. I've tried to communicate to our Compassion Radio family over the past few years that There are critical times when you need immigrants. You need this because you have never been called out to be the thing or to even try to step in where God has said you must go. And when they come to you, they make it easy because they're right there. You know, God's not asking you to get on a plane and go fly halfway around the world and go trek to a village in order to be hospitable and live the gospel. He just asked you to open your front door. And in most places in America, you're within about a five to 10 minute distance at most from somebody who's got a story of how they ended up here as an immigrant. And reminding yourselves that we are not just a country of immigrants from the past. We are a country of immigration. We are a country of transition. The families, the cultures, the culture itself that we're living in is in transition constantly because we are, by design, a country that could make it possible for others who can sojourn in our land and make something of their lives. We're built on that principle, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Give me some closing words, if you could, here about what you think the church really needs to know going forward now, because we have this opportunity to help make it better for a great number of Afghans who really loved us in their country and served with us and alongside us and believed the dream that we had proclaimed to them about a better Afghanistan. 
which may or may not happen. Yeah. What can we do? And what should we know? You know, an image that often gets used to describe the United States or other countries in regard to immigration is the idea of a shining city on a hill that, you know, we'd be Mm. a place that draws people in. And I think that's a beautiful imagery. President Reagan used that language in a speech Mm. towards the end of his administration. But I think it's important to note that the idea of a city on a hill doesn't come from any American politician. And it wasn't used initially to talk about the United States of America. It was Jesus's words in Matthew chapter five to his disciples, to the earliest form of the church. You know, he goes on to say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You know, we should let your light shine before others. They would see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. As we face this crisis in Afghanistan and tens of thousands of Afghans coming to the United States, I'm just mindful that those tens of thousands of people, and frankly, millions more who are not able to get on that plane, who are looking at the response of people in the United States, whom are rightly or wrongly presumed to all be Christians, whether that response is one of welcome and genuine hospitality and and love and advocacy, or a response of apathy, or even hostility or, or fear, is going to have a remarkable impression upon people who statistically are unlikely to even know a Christian, have ever even met a Christian. But they're judging who Jesus is based on the response of people who profess to follow Jesus to what is ultimately part of the greatest refugee crisis in recorded history. I mean, the Afghan situation is just one part of a much larger crisis. And my prayer is that churches all over the United States, with the church in other parts of the world, would step up to welcome people, to love these new neighbors. And that as we do so, we would be that shining city on a hill and that God would be glorified in the process. No matter the politics or the time, my prayer is that the kingdom of God grows and thrives. It has always seemed to thrive in times of persecution, and not just necessarily persecution of them, but when they see it around them, and they see an opportunity to rush in as Jesus rushed to our need, and not be afraid or ashamed of the fact that this countercultural obedience and following of Jesus where he would go and where he wants us to go, where he is going, is something that is a living testament to a living God. And the world's coming to us. Sometimes we've driven them to it, sometimes accidentally and not always to our credit. But nonetheless, we still can respond. I don't want us to shy away from that. Um, Before we go, Matt, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the work of your immigration roundtable, the the people you're working with now. What are the objectives there, and what can we as a church know about that work? Yeah, so the Evangelical Immigration Table started almost a decade ago, really with the purpose of helping bring a biblical conversation around immigration, both in terms of at the local church level, but also in Washington, D.C. You know, most of our elected officials profess to be Christians of one sort or another. And what we've seen is often the policy debates around immigration lacking in any sort of biblical principles on any side. So we've really tried to bring those in to the conversation. So working with partners like the National Association of Evangelicals, the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, and World Vision, various others. What we've basically said is here's some core principles that we think are guided by the Bible that we'd like to inform the president, members of Congress, as they pursue immigration policies, whether that's refugees coming from Afghanistan or how we respond to immigrants who are in the country unlawfully. Can we both honor the law, but also be compassionate and keep families together? So, yeah, we've got a lot of resources at the Evangelical Immigration Tables website, which is just evangelicalimmigrationtable.com, Bible reading guides, as well as we have an ebook called Thinking Biblically About Immigrants and Immigration Reform. And we've found it's been a good resource, both for lay people in churches, but also for, for pastors and leaders as well. All right. I'm going to ask you to give that web address again right at the end program when we sign off. But I'll ask you one more question on the way out the door, which usually would be the first question I'd ask. Why do you do the work you do? 
That's a great question. You know, I started with World Relief. I wouldn't say it was a the profound call of God as much as I needed a job and World Relief was down the street from the campus where I was studying. Uh, um, I actually did an internship with World Relief in Nicaragua and really loved the mission of empowering the church to serve the vulnerable. I didn't know anything about immigration, but World Relief had an office in Wheaton, Illinois. So I applied for a job and started doing this work. And really quickly, I realized that caring for immigrants, which seemed sort of obvious to me as a Christian, was this big controversial issue for a lot of Christians. And that, frankly, that's only become more true in the last 15 years. And to me, it, it's a little bit heartbreaking. We've done research on this. Only 12% of evangelical Christians say that their views on the arrival of immigrants to their community are primarily informed by the Bible, um, by their own admission. You would kind of expect people to lie a little bit in a survey like this if they know the Bible is sort of the right answer for evangelicals. But more people said the media informs their views than said the Bible. And I don't think they're talking about yeah. Compassion Radio Program when they say the media. It's more often the no. cable news program or something on social media that probably doesn't have any biblical principles incorporated. That really motivates me in my work. I don't think we all have to agree on you know the right immigration policy necessarily. But I, I hope for those of us who are Christians that we can all start from the starting point of God's word. Fair enough. Now, Matt Sorens of uh, World Relief, if you would... Give us that website again so we can learn more about the work of this roundtable and the publications that might be available for download. Yeah, really two websites. So worldrelief.org, worldrelief.org for anything with World Relief, both in the U.S. and globally. And then the evangelicalimmigrationtable.com, where there's all sorts of resources for learning about immigration from a Christian perspective. All right. Matthew Sorens from World Relief. Thank you so much for spending some time really to kind of take us through a Compassion and Biblical Hospitality 101 course in about an hour. You've done a good job with that today. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be with you. Thanks for having me, Graham. My thanks to Matt Sorens of World Relief. Again, you can find more information about their work at worldrelief.org. To hear our podcast and to make your love gift, simply go to our website, CompassionRadio.com. Our toll-free number is 1-800-868-2478. You can also write us and send your gift by mail to Compassion Radio, P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859. I'm Bram Floria. God bless you, friends.